Tonight we're talking about Revelation's ultimate message. And um, it's, sort of, it's sort of hard to decide what Revelation's ultimate message would be. I mean, what is the, the last message or the most important message that we find in this book? There's so many things. You know, a lot, of, a lot of Revelation is unfolding events that will take place, issues that will take place in the last days. But there are a couple of passages in the book of Revelation that are not just describing things that will be in symbols or even at times literally. There are a couple of passages that are actually giving a message that is meant to be an important message, I believe, in the last days. And we're going to be looking at one of those passages here this evening. And um, so I hope you brought your Bibles. We're going to be using them tonight. We're going to be looking at Revelation's ultimate message, the most important message, and I believe in many ways the last message. And so we're going to look first to Revelation chapter 14. Now, uh, we are looking in Revelation chapter 14. It's, <clears throat> it's a it's an it's a answer, really, to Revelation 13. We looked there briefly the second night. Remember Revelation 13 uses language from Daniel chapter 3, the image that was set up on the plain of Dura. Remember that? The people were commanded by Babylon to, to worship an image that Babylon had set up on pain of death if they disobeyed, right? And God's people, the three Hebrew worthies there on the plain of Dura, they had to answer the question, who are we going to obey? Are we going to obey God and die, or are we going to obey man and live, right? And this, this story is borrowed in Revelation 13 when end-time Babylon, symbolic Babylon, we're going to be looking at that in great detail um, next weekend, I believe it's next weekend, um, just uh, in an upcoming meeting, we're going to be looking at that in great detail, but end-time Babylon also creates an image, demands that the world worships the image, if they don't, they're going to be put to death. And once again, God's people have to make a decision. Who are we going to obey? So next, next Friday night, um, we're going to be looking at the issue of worship particularly, comparing Revelation 13 and Revelation 14, a very important topic. But um, tonight, we're going to be looking at the answer to this dilemma. In other words, if, if this is going to happen in the world, if there is going to be a time when there is a decree once again made that you have to make a decision whether you're going to obey God or you're going to obey man. Wouldn't God prepare the world for that time? And I believe Revelation 14 is the answer to what the beast tries to do in Revelation 13. So let's look there. Revelation chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 6. Revelation chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 6. He says, I saw, John saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting what? What does it say? everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. How many of them? It says to every nation and kindred or tribe and tongue and people. And so here we find a, an amazing message, an angel symbolizing a message or a messenger. That's what the word, messen, uh, the word angel really means, a servant or messenger. This angel is flying through the midst of heaven and he has a, a, a global message. A message that everybody is supposed to hear. You think that's an important message? You think that might be something that is, 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 is pretty essential for us to know, especially if we're living in the times this is talking about? I believe it is. Now, why do I think this is a message just before the second coming, just before the end of time or the end of probation? 
If we skip down, there's actually three angels. We're just going to be looking at the first one tonight. But there's actually three angels. One of them talks about the everlasting gospel. The second one talks about the fall of Babylon. And the third one warns about what we read about in Revelation 13. Don't worship the image or his beast or receive his mark. And so the, and after these three, message, these three angels give their message, there is a new scene presented to John. Let's look and see what it is. Verse 14, Revelation 14, verse 14. He says, and I looked and behold a what? White cloud and upon the clouds one sat like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the throne. Who sat on the throne? The son of man, one like the son of man, Jesus, the king, right? The other angel says to the one who sits on the throne, on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. A lot of symbolism here. But essentially the time has come when, when this world has reached its final, its final development, like we talked about last night, of the principles of Satan's government and the principles of God's government. People have had an opportunity to see fully these two systems of selfishness versus selflessness played out. And characters have been formed, decisions have been made. The earth is ripe and the harvest takes place. I believe, again, just like we read in Revelation 19 a few nights ago, this is a description of the second coming here at the end of the uh, seven, seven trumpets. And so here we find a, a, a description of the end, and I believe, this is why I believe, these messages of the three angels are so important, important, and what I am calling tonight Revelation's ultimate or most important last message. And so let's look at this message more closely together, shall we? Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, what did he say? Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, if this is such an important message, I think it's something we should spend a little time on. So I'm going to back up a little bit here, and I read that. I'm going to ask you to read it with me, all right? This is what the first angel says, saying with a loud voice, read it with me, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Continue on. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, this is a message that is supposed to go to the whole world. Now, if it's supposed to go to the whole world, it must include you and me, right? So we ought to know what it's talking about. Now, remember, Revelation is a symbolic book. Now, um, when we when we look at this message, we would expect that it, although it, it's written in plain English and it has, it has obvious uh, meaning just as it reads, we would expect that there might even be deeper meaning hidden in the language here in Revelation chapter 14, wouldn't we? And so we're going to take some time to look at what these four different parts of the message have to say to us this evening. Tonight we're going to be make, looking primarily the first three as I mentioned, we're going to be talking more about worship in Revelation 13 and 14 next weekend. And so um, it's a huge topic because that's the topic that the beast in Revelation 13, that he makes that the issue, right? He tries to force the issue of worship. And God says, no, worship who? Worship the Creator. 
Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters, the springs of water. So four parts of this first angel's message. First, fear God. It's very interesting in the, in the King James Version, which I, I love to study the King James Version. Um, maybe it's just because I, I grew up that way and, and um, I find it's, it is a good translation. Um, but in the King James Version, it's very interesting that this, these four parts are broken into, um, uh, well, if we look at the first, first injunction of the everlasting gospel here in Revelation 14, 7, it's just two words, right? Fear God. How many for the second? Give glory to Him. How many for the third? For his, uh, the hour of His judgment has come. It's eight. And believe it or not, at least in the King James translation, I haven't really looked to see if it's that way in the Greek, but in the King James, it, the, the last one is 16. It's like 2, 4, 8, 16. Doubles every time. Very, I don't know what that means. It's just interesting, right? Um, I don't like to try to put meaning there that the Bible hasn't put there, but it's very interesting. I like the way God starts simply. Don't you like that? Because, you know, if God started with the most complex things, some of us would get overwhelmed. But God starts very simply. The first part of the everlasting gospel, and we don't usually think of the gospel presented in this language, but I'm going to show you how it really is. The first part is very simple. Fear God. It's not complicated. It's not, it's not uh, very, uh, very abstract. It's not long and hard to remember, simply two words, fear God. Now, what does the fear of God mean? We're going to have a little Bible study, so get your Bibles ready. We're going to look at a number of verses here. I decided instead of putting them on the slide, we're going to turn in our Bibles, just because I like the sound of those pages. And um, if you're taking notes, you can write them down. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. First, we're going to see what it does not mean. 1 John chapter 4. And verse 18, if we were in Revelation, we just have to go back a few pages to 1 John because it's one of the last of the general epistles that we find here at the end of our New Testament. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, and this is what John says. And by the way, John was, was we believe, the youngest of the disciples. And he's also, when he writes, when he writes his, his gospel, the gospel according to John... He refers to himself in the third person. He doesn't refer to himself in the first person. He always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that interesting? John really loved Jesus too. And John had a, a very childlike maybe trust and, and appreciation for his Savior. And notice with me what he says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love Cast out fear, because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, if we know that perfect love casts out fear, who do we think has perfect love? God does, right? In fact, just 10 verses earlier, in 1 John 4, verse 8, it says, For God is love, that definition of God and His character. God is love. So if perfect love casts out fear, I don't think the fear of God, which is described as part of the gospel, good news, means that we should be afraid of God. Do you agree with me on that? I don't think it means we should be afraid of God. What does it mean? We can see in the Old Testament that the fear of God is used as an expression that is sometimes described as being that is fundamental to Christian growth. Proverbs chapter 9 
and verse 10. And I just picked one out of Proverbs here. The fear of the Lord is a phrase, if you were to search that in your Bible app or on your computer or in your concordance, um, if you were to search that, you would find that the fear of the Lord is found over and over in Proverbs. And we could look at numerous verses that say similar things. But notice what it says here in verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. Are you there? All right. The fear of the Lord is the what? The beginning of wisdom. So there's something that's fundamental about the fear of God, right? It's where we start. Surprise. That's where the everlasting gospel started, right? Fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the way, the, the way Hebrew poetry often works, I'm not an expert on Hebrew poetry, but the way it often works, it either uses synonym phrases that, that mean the same thing or it uses antonym phrases. Basically, it's either going to use a phrase that, that, um, that, that says one thing, it says something and it says the same thing in other words, or it says the same thing and it says the opposite in other words. You understand what I'm saying? And um, here you find a, a synonym phrase being used after that. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is what? understanding. So use that little principle of how the Hebrew mind works sometime when you read through Proverbs, because you'll gain insights into one phrase by the second phrase that the author paired with it. You understand? He's trying to use parallel thoughts there. And sometimes, especially since we're not, we don't have the benefit of reading in the original language with the exact words that he used and the nuances, those nuances come through when we compare the phrase um, that is used to either oppose it or or compliment it. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. We also read that the fear of the Lord leads to obedience. Look with me at two verses on this. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20. It's very interesting. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20. What do we know Exodus 20 for? Yeah, that's when God gave his law written with his own finger on Mount Sinai, and he gave it to Moses. And you remember that um, the people saw the, the thunderings and the lightnings and the smoke and the mountain trembling, and they, uh, they ran away from the base of the mountain, actually, when they saw it all. And they said to Moses, uh, you know, uh, don't let God speak to us lest we die. Notice with me what um, Moses says. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20. Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said unto the people, fear not. That's a good thing, right? Don't be afraid. It's interesting, you're going, to find, <laughs> you're going to find in the same sentence, Moses says, don't be afraid, but fear, right? <laughs> I love it. Fear not, for God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces, that you what? Sin not. Okay, so well, we don't really know what this fear is yet. We know it's not being afraid, but we see there's a byproduct of it, right? It's obeying God. It's not disobeying him and, and sinning. There's something that, that the fear of God does in our hearts. Um, Psalm 111 and verse 10. Psalm 111 and verse 10. Am I giving you too many verses? Do you like this? Psalm 111 and verse 10. I like it too. I, I love to see how the Bible interprets and explains itself. Notice with me, we find another parallel passage here. Psalm 111 and verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We heard that before, right? Notice the parallel pas passage. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endures forever. You see that parallel thought? 
The fear of the Lord is related to keeping His commandments, to, uh, to obeying Him. Very, very interesting. Now, before you start thinking that it's all about commandments, before we go there, I want to give you one more verse. It's not on the slide, all right? This is a bonus. I won't charge you any extra. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. I, I have to say, even though I neglected to put it on the screen, I have to say this is my all-time favorite verse in the whole Bible about the fear of God. Um, because it's a promise. It's in the form of a promise. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40. Jeremiah 32 and verse 40. Um, this is a passage that, is, that helps us to understand how the gospel, according to the Revelation, can begin with this fear of God. Okay? Because usually when we think about the gospel, we think about grace, right? We think about what God has done for us. Not not what we can do or obedience, like the verses we just looked at. But notice with me, Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40, and I will make them an everlasting covenant with them. Does this remind you of anything you've read elsewhere? Do you remember the new covenant? It's found here in Jeremiah. It's repeated in the book of Hebrews. Okay, this is God's promise to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put, what does he say? What does he say? I will put my fear where? In their hearts. Is, is the fear of God something we have to conjure up by ourselves? Is it something that we have to say, well, I need more of that fear of God. I need to try harder. Is that what it is? This is a part of the new covenant promise that God makes with his people that he will put his fear in our hearts that he says they shall not depart from me. Oh, that's a wonderful promise. That's a wonderful promise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To depart from evil um, is understanding. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and a good understanding of all they that do His commandments. I will put my fear in their hearts that they will not depart from me. He, the Lord has come before you to test you and to prove you that His fear may be before you that you sin not. It's not because we try harder. It's not about what we can do. Friends, it's what God can do for us. It's what God has promised to do for us. Oh, it's good news. I think that the fear of God can be best understood or maybe most practically understood when we contrast it with what is the opposite of the fear of God. And I want you to look with me in John chapter 7. John is full of this. I'm not sure why, but he's the gospel writer that expresses this phrase a number of times. We're just going to look at two of them so you understand what the fear of man is. The fear of man. Because the fear of God is, I believe, being contrasted with the fear of man. Now, what does the fear of man mean? Does the fear of man mean that we're afraid of human beings? Is it sort of like a homo sapien phobia where you see a human being, you run and hide? Is that what the fear of man is? Of course not. That's not what we're talking about here. You're going to see how John defines the fear of man. John chapter 7, verse 13. And this is what he says. John 7, verse 13. Howbeit no man spoke openly of him, that's about Jesus, for fear of who? Now these were mostly Jews. So were they afraid of Jews? When they saw a Jew coming, did they run and hide? Why, why were they not willing to speak openly about Jesus? Some people believed in him as the scent of God, right? Or at least a good man, it says in the previous verse. 
but they wouldn't speak openly about him because why? Because they were afraid that other people would not approve or agree or they might even have some consequences, right? That was the fear of the Jews. If we look a few chapters later, John chapter 9, there's the story of the man who was born blind. And you remember Jesus healed him and... Um, and he, uh, he, he didn't even know who Jesus was when he healed him because he hadn't met him. He had gone and washed his eyes in the pool of Siloam and come back seeing. And um, the, the, uh, the Pharisees brought him into the temple because they wanted to find out. They knew who healed Jesus. It wasn't like there was a whole bunch of people walking around Jerusalem in those days just healing people born blind, right? They knew it was Jesus that had healed this blind man, but they wanted him to tell them. They, they were trying to find some evidence to, to punish Jesus, they, they, particularly because he had, um, he had done this, um, this miracle um, that they thought was not done properly or not done on the Sabbath, shouldn't have been done on the Sabbath. And so they, they bring this, this now-seeing young man into the temple, and they start asking him questions, right? And um, they said, well, they, who, who healed you? He said, well, I don't know. He just told me to do this, right? So they brought in the parents. And they said, um, they, they, uh, they, they, the parents, I think, already knew. But notice with me in verse 20, first of all. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who has opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. They were passing the buck, weren't they? Now, why were they not willing to say what they knew? It says it in verse 22. These words spoke his parents because they what? Feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ... He should be put out of the synagogue. Are you seeing what's happening here? These parents did not want to be disfellowshipped from their church. They didn't want their friends to think they had gone off the deep end following this teacher. Some of them would have, right? And fear of the Jews prevented them from confessing, even though their own son who had been born blind could now see. The fear of the Jews was so strong in these parents' psyche that they were afraid to say their testimony of what Jesus had done for them. Isn't it interesting? Now, I, I suppose, friends, that while we may not have the fear of the Jews in Dalton, Georgia today, we're not really afraid of the rabbis in the temple, I would suppose that we too, human nature not having changed too much, we too may have a tendency to have the fear of man inculcated in our psyche so that we too tend to consider what will people think before we do something now that's not all bad you understand i don't believe that we should become pariahs in society and try to be nuisances and obnoxious and and just tr just try to be so social misfits we shouldn't try to do that that's not the point at all the point is that there's got to be a, a hierarchy of whose opinion of us is more important. Do you understand where we're going with this? We've got to come to the point where we say, I'm less concerned about what people say 
and I'm more concerned about what God says. That's the essence of the fear of God. I'm less concerned about what people say, and I'm more concerned about what God says. The fear of God is simply being more interested in pleasing Him than in pleasing others. The fear of God is seeking His approval before that of our peers and colleagues, friends and family. The fear of God is saying, what does God think before what will my friends think? That's what the fear of God is. And it's contrasted with the fear of man. The fear of man is making decisions based on what others will think or do. The fear of God is being more interested in saying, what will God think of my decision? And the gospel according to Revelation says, the beginning of our spiritual walk is when we get our priorities straight. When we begin to say, I'm going to honor God before I please man. I'm going to please God before I do what others say I should do. This is the foundation of all spiritual growth. The fear of the Lord, the, the wise man said, is the beginning of wisdom. Now, if we look at great heroes of the Bible, we could just go right down through the, the, the chapter of faith, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and we could ask ourselves the question, which did Abel demonstrate the fear of God or the fear of man when he brought a more pleasing sacrifice to the Lord? He, he, he pleased God, didn't he? Because God said, bring a lamb. Cain said, well, I think. Do you see, the, do you see how early in the human race we had this problem developing between what God said and what I think? <laughs> it happened very, very early. But Abel said, you know what? I'd, I'm going to please God rather than pleasing my older brother. And so he brought a more excellent sacrifice, according to Hebrews 11. Noah, preaching for 120 years, do you think he was exhibiting the fear of God or the fear of man? Clearly, the majority of the world were not on, Moa's, on Noah's fan list, right? Clearly, most of them did not, did not uh, agree with Noah's prognosis or predictions of the global flood. They didn't, because only his family, his three sons and their wives and his own wife, only the eight of them got under the ark, according to the Bible record. So the majority of the world was saying, you're crazy. You're crazy. This can't happen. Science proves it can't happen. But Noah said, but God said, because he had the fear of God in his heart not the fear of man. If we look through Abraham, he's, he's asked by God to leave his comfortable home in Ur of the Chaldees. And if you were here when Dr. Hazel, the archaeologist, spoke on, on the ancient world um, a few weeks ago, you, you'll, you, you would have heard how Ur of the Chaldees was the civilization of the day. This was New York City. This was the culture, the arts, the, the, the wealth of that part of the world. And Abraham is asked to leave his family, his home, everything that was familiar, and go. Well, where was he going to go? Where are you going, Abe? I don't actually know, but God's going to show me. What? You think Abraham exhibits the fear of God? 
The fear of man. I'd say is the fear of God, right? He had to have, to follow God, even though he didn't know where he was going. He had to have had the fear of God in his heart. We look at Joseph. Joseph was a, a helpless slave, powerless, in, in Potiphar's house. He, was, he had been bought and sold, trafficked as a human being. He had no way of defending himself, and he could have rationalized all kinds of, of reasons why he should go along with Potiphar's wife's request. But he says, how can I do this great sin against God? Why? Because he had the fear of man or the fear of God? He had the fear of God in his heart. And we look at Daniel. We talked about him the first day, uh, the second day, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his three friends, they knew that that food that had been offered to idols, which wasn't healthy food to begin with, they weren't supposed to eat it according to their Hebrew traditions and according to what God had said. Would they fear God or fear man? What ended up happening? They feared God, right? They said, we're going to purpose in our hearts that we will not defile ourselves. On the plain of Dura, Daniel chapter 3, here again, you see the fear of God, right? Oh, friends, we can look back in history and say, well, they were brave men. I think sometimes I read the Bible stories with an assumption that, of course, if I had been there, I would have done what they did. Do you read the Bible that way too? <laughs> but you know how I know whether I would have done that? It's by whether I do it today. Will I follow Jesus? Will I follow His Word when it's not popular to do so? When my friends make fun of me? I was a young person once. I had to make these decisions. You might think, well, you know, now you don't have teenagers and peer pressure and all. Do we still have peer pressure? Yes. We do. And God is calling for our hearts, our priorities to be straight so that we fear God more than we fear man. More than we fear man. On the plain of Dura, John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of, of the Jordan River. We could look at so many different stories, illustrations. Stephen, the, the first Christian martyr, his own people took up stones and stoned him. Why? Because he feared God more than he feared man. And he spoke the truth and he followed his Savior who had died for him. And so over and over we see the, the Bible heroes, they have, they've given us an example of what it means to fear God, what it means to have the fear of God before their eyes. And I don't know about you, friends, but I want to have that. I'm glad it's not based upon what I can do myself. I'm glad it's based upon God's promise that He can do it for me. He says He will put His fear in my heart. And I just have to claim that promise. And then I have to make some decisions sometimes, don't I? I have to decide to actually follow. Um, his will, when it conflicts with, conflicts with popular opinion. The second part of this everlasting gospel, give glory to Him. This is a, another phrase, four words, maybe seems a little more complicated, but it's really quite simple. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 verse 31, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? What does it say? Do all to the glory of God. That's what it says. Do all to the glory of God. Now, you might say, well, what does that mean? What it means is, after you've put your priorities straight and asked God to put His law in your, or His fear in your hearts, 
I get confused with the other rendition of that promise, the everlasting covenant, right? He'll write His law in our hearts too, it says. But after we ask Him to put His fear in our hearts, then, then we, have, we will see changes in our lives. Do you believe that? I believe so. I believe that the point of the Christian life is not just so that we can be saved, but so, so that we can glorify God. And he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do you think that sort of covers the bases? <laughs> whatever you do, even in things as small and pecuniary as Daniel thought about the food and drink, or even bigger items, whatever's in, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Your lives, my life as a Christian, ought to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. That's the point. It's not just so that we can be saved, stamped, you know, we're saved in heaven. No, God wants to work in us so that we can bless other people and we can, we can bring glory to the King of Kings. Now, this word glory, very interesting word here. It has a meaning that is consistently used throughout the Bible. And it talks about the, 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 the way glory is used. It's consistently used to refer to character to a demonstration of character traits, characteristics. Um, for example, uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, But we all with open face beholding in a glass, as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed from the same image. So we behold the glory of the Lord, right? Do we actually see some Shekinah glory somewhere? No, well, I don't think so. But it says we behold the glory of the Lord, we're changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the, by the Spirit of the Lord. I believe what this is saying is, as we study our Bibles and we see the character of God, as we dwell upon the character of God, we ourselves become transformed to be more like Him. We reflect His character. Notice with me in the Old Testament how this is used as well. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. Moses, on the mount of uh, Sinai, in God's presence, he says, uh, please show me your glory. And in response to Moses' request, what does God do? It says that in, in, in chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And he goes on talking about being just as well. What is God revealing to Moses when he asked to show his glory? He's revealing his character, isn't he? This is what I'm like. This is my glory. And so when the, when the gospel says, the gospel according to Revelation, when it says, fear God, give glory to him, he's saying, allow that, that, that desire to please God to to work a transformation in your own life. This is something that we can't do so for ourselves, friends. This is something God has to do in us. God is the one who changes our hearts. Can a, can a leopard change his spots or an Ethiopian his skin? It's a rhetorical question that Jeremiah asked. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil, but God says he can change our hearts. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. That's the only way we can give glory to God, is when we have been saved by His grace, and He does a work that we cannot do in our hearts. Now, we cooperate, don't we? I mean, we, we behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord. If you Listen, friends, 
it's not because you want to be saved or want Jesus to love you that you want to spend time reading the Bible. Jesus already loves you. He's already willing to save you right now before you even read the Bible, right? But we want to read the Bible because we love Him who first loved us, right? And as we cooperate with Him, spending time in His Word, meditating upon His Word, He changes us from glory to glory, even as by the presence of the Lord. And so the fear of God is being more interested in pleasing God than pleasing others. To give glory to God is to allow Him to do a work of loving obedience in our hearts. We have to move quickly here. The third part of our everlasting gospel, the last one we're looking at tonight. For the hour of His judgment has come. What a, uh, um, an interesting passage here. It seems like if this is talking about the final judgment, that it would be hard for the next part to be, um, or it would be hard. It would be hard in context to understand how this could be the the final judgment. Because notice it says, "For the hour of his judgment has come." So this is a this is a worldwide message that we ought to fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of his judgment has come. Now, if it's if it's the final judgment of the of the wicked and righteous, then it's a little too late to fear God and give glory to Him, right? And so this must be talking about a preliminary judgment. And it's the preliminary judgment is a reason being given. It's the rationalization for why it's so important for us to fear God and give glory to Him. You understand what it's being, what's being said here? Now, why would he say, for the hour of His judgment has come? We find the answer to this passage, or this, this, uh, this symbolic language, in the Old Testament ceremonies of the sanctuary. And I want to just take you for the next couple minutes in a little bit of an understanding of what the sanctuary service meant. You remember that the sanctuary service was not just something that God gave for the Israelites to try to earn their own salvation. In fact, Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats can never forgive sins, right? So those those, those sacrifices that the Hebrews were making over there in the wilderness and even when they built the temples, those sacrifices themselves could not save them. What could save them was faith in the coming sacrifice, right? The coming lamb. They pointed forward to something. Paul explains this in great detail in the book of Galatians when he talks about the, the ceremonial law being a shadow of things to come. But when the seed came, which is Christ... We no longer have to follow that ceremonial law. So here you, have, here you have the sanctuary service actually not only illustrating the death of Christ and how we confess our sins and they're forgiven, but we actually have the entire system of atonement being illustrated in the sanctuary service. From the time the, 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 the sinner came with the lamb and, and, and took the life of the lamb and that, that blood was transferred to the sanctuary and then there were different feasts and ceremonies throughout the Hebrew year, the calendar year, that pointed forward to the real, the real plan of salvation, which was to be inaugurated, the real temple, which was to be, which was to be, uh, which was to be anointed or dedicated after the ascension of Christ. And so... So the sanctuary service is, a, is, a, is like an like a, a, um, illustration of the real plan of salvation. I'll give you some examples. 
Jesus was the Lamb, right? The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You remember they observed the Passover? That was one of their great feasts that they observed. And as they observed the Passover, they would, um, they would kill the Lamb, right? Do you know that what feast was Jesus coming to observe in Jerusalem on the weekend of His crucifixion? Well, the Sunday before the Passover. Do you realize that what God did is He actually fit, He sort of superimposed the, the ceremonies that pointed forward to the real plan of salvation so that they were even fulfilled on the day of those ceremonies. Isn't that very interesting? Jesus died at the hour of the evening sacrifice, and um, that temple veil was rent from the top to the bottom, meaning it didn't really matter if we sacrificed lambs on the altar anymore, right? Because the real lamb had died on Calvary's tree. And so, so the sanctuary service was meant to point forward to what would happen. What took place after the Passover? What was the next major feast? Well, yeah, the Passover and the unleavened bread sort of went together, right? And you had, you, had the, you had the first fruits, and then you had Pentecost. And both of these were pointing forward to what would happen as Jesus, the first fruits of them who slept, right? He ascended back to His Father, right? Wasn't he called the first fruits? Yes, he's the first fruit. And so here he is. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's, he's the one who's going to be accepted by God as a, a token of all those who will one day be saved. And he is accepted. His sacrifice was complete. It was acceptable. The first fruits, that was fulfilled as Jesus ascended back to his father. Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. And what happened then? The Holy Spirit was poured out. That was a Hebrew holiday before, before the latter rain or the former rain was poured out. You see what was happening? These feasts were meant to symbolize the real plan of salvation as it would unfold. And it actually came about on those days. Um, amazing how God worked. And so when we, when we look at this sanctuary service, we see this symbol of the real plan of salvation. We see how every day the sinners brought lambs to the temple, and they're, 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 it would be right over here, actually, uh, uh, according to sources. It would be right over here where the, the, the priests would inspect the lambs to make sure it would be acceptable sacrifice. They couldn't be diseased, no spot, spot or blemish, because they pointed forward to Jesus. And then the sinner would, would slice the throat of that, the vein of that lamb, taking its life, and the priest would catch the blood. From there on, we won't go into all the details, but the blood would be carried into the temple. It would be sprinkled on the thorns of the altar, on the, on the altar of sacrifice. It would also be sprinkled on, before the veil and put on the altar of incense. Some of the flesh would be burned on the altar of sacrifice. Some of the flesh would be given to the Levites, and they would actually use it for food symbolically, the sin of Israel was being transferred to the sanctuary, and it was being transferred to the priests. The priests were sin-bearing priests. Who did they represent? They represented Jesus, who was to bear the sins of the world. And so we find this, this understanding of the, the blood transferring the sins in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. How did it get on the horns of the altars? Because of that blood that was transferred from, the guilt would be transferred from the sinner to the lamb, the lamb through its blood to the sanctuary. And so what's very interesting is that throughout the, uh, throughout the year, this would continue to take place. 
sins would be transferred to the sanctuary. But in the last part of the year, in the last part of the Hebrew uh, ceremonial year, there was the, what they considered the day of judgment. Now, Yom Kippur is the terminus, the end, it's like the last, the last of the days of judgment. But before, the day, before Yom Kippur was Rosh Hashanah, and Rosh Hashanah is where they would take the uh, shofar, and every morning and every evening they would blow a blast of the shofar, the ram's horn trumpet. Um, and I'm not an expert on these Hebrew things, but this is how I understand it. They would blow the, the ram's horn trumpet, and this would signal that Yom Kippur is coming, the day of judgment is coming, and we should cleanse our hearts and our homes. It was as if, it was as if the, you know how we live our lives from the time we're born until we die, right? Or, Lord willing, till we see Jesus. Um, without dying, that would be wonderful. Um, but we live our lives like this. We understand the time is coming when there's no longer going to be opportunity for us to change our minds, right? I mean, we either have chosen one way or the other. Um, the way the Hebrews in their in their annual calendar, they're demonstrating the entire plan of salvation every single year. They sort of had one year to live at a time. At the end of that year, they were encouraged to have all their sins already confessed and forgiven because you couldn't just go back the previous year. You understand? What was that illustrating? It was illustrating there's going to come a time in salvation's history when you don't just, there's no more forgiveness of sins. Does that make sense? And so, so Rosh Hashanah, they'd blow the trumpet and they would remind the people that the final judgment is coming. They were, told, they were told to search their hearts. The King James uses the phrase, afflict your souls. Search your heart and see if there's something that needs to be changed, something that needs to be done differently. On those days, by the way, they, they were to... They were to clean their homes. They were to dress simply. They were to avoid, um, they were to avoid um, alcohol and, and uh, rich foods. They were to focus on this task of preparing for the judgment. Very interesting symbolism that we find here, right? This is what Chabad.org describes as Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah's man's actions were weighed and he is written and inscribed either favorably or unfavorably. Um, another description, this is from modern uh, contemporary sources. I just looked online. I have a number of books I could have quoted, but I thought it'd be interesting to see what's current. Yom Kippur is probably the most important holiday of the Jewish year. On Yom Kippur, the judgment entered is sealed. This day is essentially your last appeal, your last chance to change the judgment, to demonstrate your repentance and to make amends. Now, I want you to understand here these are, these are not Messianic Jews who would understand the understanding of grace and forgiveness. There's a little bit of works involved in their understanding of the judgment. But you understand how they see Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. This is the judgment, and this is your last chance. Now, what do you think? If the real last chance of salvation's history was approaching, don't you think God would give a message too? What if Revelation 14... This phrase where it says the hour of his judgment has come is actually an unveiling to the whole world that, hey, it's time to be serious. 
because we're in the last days. I believe that's what it is. I believe it's actually what it's talking about. I want to share with you something. It's, it, it's a little bit humorous, but I found that it, it illustrated how the, how the Orthodox Jews today understand Rosh Hashanah. And um, hopefully you have sound here. By the way, it's 19 minutes before sundown on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. And you have to be home. I mean. The cry of the shofar, shofar will awake your soul. Maybe the cry of the first angel of Revelation is meant to awake our souls. Maybe God has a message that he's trying to get through to planet Earth, not just to a little bit of planet Earth, but to all parts of heaven, uh, planet Earth, that we might know what Jesus is about to do in the heavenly sanctuary, that he's going to be wrapping up his work of salvation. The great atonement is going to be completed and he's going to uh, bring an end to sin and suffering. We have a work to do in cooperating with him. Paul said it this way, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Did, did Paul see the judgment as being future? Yes, he did. He says he appointed a day in which he will judge the world in future. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. We haven't gotten to Daniel. We're going to be studying Daniel in chapter 7, I'm sorry, we haven't gotten to Daniel chapter 7, we'll be looking at it in depth when we talk about the certain and undeniable identity of the Antichrist in a couple nights here. But it says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Now that sounds ominous, doesn't it? It sounds grand. It sounds amazing. But the, the, what's wonderful about it is that it's also good news. 
You know, some people, when they think of judgment, they get scared. Listen, friends, I wish I could spend a whole time, just, just a whole lecture, just talking about how good the judgment is for God's people. It's wonderful news. In fact, David, over and over, he says, bring it on. Bring it on. That's what David says. He's like, let the judgment happen. Notice with me why it's such good news. I was watching, a few verses later, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. The judgment, my friends, is the process by which this whole problem of sin is finally and forever resolved, and Christ takes his kingdom. And in fact, if we look in the last verse of Daniel chapter 7, this, is, this was still the vision that, John, uh, that Daniel is seeing. If we looked at the last, the last verse or two of Daniel chapter 7, we find it stated this way in Daniel chapter... Well, this is in the King James Version. It says, And the, the judgment shall sit, they shall take away his dominion, that's from the little horn, to consume and destroy it into the end, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Is the judgment good news? It's good news. But notice with me, uh, the judgment is good news. Jesus receives his kingdom. When the judgment is finished, sin and suffering are over. I can't wait for that day. He will judge the world. That is a, a promise. He will judge the world. Uh, Revelation 14, 7 said, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment. Does it say will come? No. Before Jesus comes a second time, I believe Revelation's most important message here, starting off with the everlasting gospel, these three angels, first angel gives the everlasting gospel. One of these messages is the hour of his judgment has come. There'll be a time when we can say we're living in the time just before Jesus' second coming. I believe that we are living in that time now. In fact, the same prophecy in Daniel that predicted the time, notice I said the time, of Jesus' first advent, coming as the Messiah, as dying on the cross, that same prophecy actually goes on to predict the time in which the judgment would begin. Very, very important. We're going to see that in a later seminar. Yom Kippur being fulfilled. The reason this is such an important message, Revelation's ultimate message, one to be taken to the whole world, is because it's the message that will help people be ready for Jesus' coming. It wouldn't be fair for God just to show up without the shofar, would it? It wouldn't be God, fair for God not to awaken us to our spiritual need, need. This message will prepare us to stand faithful in the last days of earth's history. What's the everlasting gospel? Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And if we get that far, guess what we're going to do next? We're going to worship the Creator. Are we going to worship the beast? No. We're going to worship the Creator. Because we have the fear of God in our hearts and we're allowing Him to let us glorify Him in our very lives. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Amen. Next week we're going to be studying what it means to worship Him that made heaven and earth, the seas, and the springs of water. I want to ask my Lord and Savior to put His fear in my heart tonight. 
to let him change my character, my life from glory to glory, that I might reflect and glorify him before the world, and that I might be ready when he comes again for his honor and glory. How about you? You like that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for giving us such simple terms an understanding of the message we need for this hour. Oh Lord, we've just scratched the surface of these verses, but yet we've, we've seen so much that we can learn. I pray that you would keep teaching us, that you'd keep us willing to learn. Lord, I pray for every single person here under the sound of my voice, that as I've made this request of you and made this decision, that they also might have the fear of God put in their hearts, that they might seek to please you before they please others. Lord, when they're tested, help them to recognize that test and help them to say, Lord, I'm more interested in what you say than what people says. I, like Daniel, want to obey God rather than man. That's my desire, Lord, tonight, and I pray that it's theirs, and I pray that it's all of ours experience. We ask this in your wonderful name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.